Sales Tuners, Episode 73, James Purvis, Account Executive at Rubric. I believe we win as a team and we lose as individuals. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from John Wooden, who said the main ingredient of stardom is the rest of the team. Joining me today is James Purvis. James recently joined Rubrik, a cloud data management platform, after becoming the number one sales rep in the world for his previous company. While he's no stranger to hypergrowth technology sales, James actually started his career selling premium suites for the Denver Broncos. And when he finds a twinkle of daylight in his calendar, James is a world traveler, having been to 22 countries and counting. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 73. But now let's get to the conversation where James describes the culture and people of Thailand as one of the best in the world. Both my wife and I, we're, we're huge travelers. We've gone 22 countries all over the place. I would say Thailand. It's a place we've been twice and we want to go again. I, I still have yet to come across a, a culture and people that are just the nicest people I've ever come across. And obviously the, the ocean there, the weather, the, the scenery is, is a huge plus. But the people there themselves just make us always want to go back. Whereabouts in Thailand did you stay? We kind of did a tour of it. The last trip we took, there's a, a thing called Yacht Week. It's a really fun event that goes on. Uh, it started out in Croatia. It's a group of, gosh, there's probably 45 different yachts of all people around the same age, kind of the 30-year-old, 30 to 40-year-olds that get on with couples and friends and you go to all different spots. So I've I've done like Phuket and obviously we started in Bangkok. We went to the PP Islands. Um, it, I've pretty much been most most of the, the hot spots out there. I've got a world trip coming up starting in July, and I will be going, my wife and I, uh, will be going to Chiang Mai and spending a month there. That's my wife's favorite place in the world. I'm not kidding. I, I, I've heard that from so many people. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, I will be hitting you up for some tips prior yeah, to- uh, please uh, do. <laughs> We're taking flight. So, James, as you know, in this show, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. So, talk to me about your sales process today. What is Rubric, and why does a typical customer buy from you? The way companies are managing and protecting their data, it, it really hasn't changed in the last 20 plus years. So, they're dealing with multiple points of technology, which results in a brittle infrastructure. It's difficult to manage and has a lot of costs associated with it. So with Rubrik, what we've done is we've made things extremely simple for our customers uh, since we've converged all of the components that make up data management, data protection into one single software that scales out. So as a result, you know, we're able to reduce the data center footprint by 70 plus percent. And you know, customers like Facebook, Best Buy, Mazda, Aflac, you know, they're seeing 30 to 50 percent cost savings as a result. So really, we, we solve for simplicity, speed, scalability, 
And it's all justified by total cost of ownership. Well, James, you haven't always been the person that you are today. So let's actually go way back. How did you get into sales? Tell me about that. How'd you get your start? I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. You know, my parents own and operate a, a family-owned jewelry store back where I grew up in in Lakewood, Colorado. Uh, growing up in this environment, it taught me a lot of the ins and outs of business um, at a very young age. So my my mother, I owe a lot to her. She's an incredible salesperson. Watching her sell definitely inspired me to get into the field of selling. And I just, I remember things like driving in the car, going to like football practice or um, just going to school and picking both my parents' brains on different ways that they were acquiring customers. Uh, my mom would always tell me she focused on selling the experience. She would tell me, you know, people, they don't buy what goes into the product. They buy what comes out. So that, that definitely stuck with me. And I try to still use this today. So um, I think a big part of you know, where I came from getting into sales, it definitely started just, just what I grew up in, the environment I grew up in. So that was the environment that kind of gave you the appreciation to go into sales. But I understand, you know, the, the Broncos selling for yeah. them, selling premium suites, that was the first gig. How, how'd that go? I went to Colorado State University and I somehow got approached about an internship as a senior in, at CSU there um, about working for the Denver Broncos. Uh, I obviously hopped on it immediately being a huge Broncos fan that I am. Um, and it was an hour and a half drive down to uh, from Fort Collins down to Denver. But um, I, I took the job. I was able to get it. And, you know, it, it's, it was pretty amazing. I, I was an intern who was there two to three days a week. Um, I spent, I tried to get there after class. I remember it was like two o'clock I would head down. So I only had a couple hours to sell. Um, and I was able to move all the way to the top and was the leader in sales there even over the the folks that were full time. How did you do that as a as a student, only being able to sell really for two hours of the business day? You know, I think a lot of it, to be honest, is just the passion I have for the product I was selling. And I try to carry that in each job, but I know that the prospects I would call could hear it in my voice. And one of our goals was to get them to actually come to the stadium. We actually worked at the stadium and to get them to come down and and actually see the stadium and, and just vision, envision the actual you know, experience that they would get if they were at a Broncos game. I was just really good at getting people to come down. It was really hard to sell that stuff just over the phone, the different tickets and premium suites, especially with some of the suites. Those are pretty high ticket items. You got to get the, the people down there. And I was able to just do that uh, better than my, my peers. They were really just trying to sell over the phone and not face-to-face. -face. I was able to get multiple meetings every single week where someone would come down and actually take a look at the stadium and the seats. So I think that was a huge part of it. I just caught my first game at Sports Authority Field at Mile High uh, this year. It was the Monday night football game, the first, uh, the second, I guess, second week of the season. So a uh, beautiful stadium. Oh, yeah. it, uh, it cracks me up that it is still Sports Authority Field at Mile High, even though Sports Authority is gone and uh, out of business. But And, and the previous, uh, previous was Invesco Field, which also went bankrupt. So I'd be hesitant to sponsor that stadium. So you moved over there uh, or from there over into the world of software sales. HP kind of recruited you. Talk to me about those early days. How were you opening up opportunities at HP as a brand new person in technology at that point? I was strictly an inside sales rep. Um, I was, they moved me down to, to Colorado Springs and just hitting the phones. You know, a typical first 
sales job out of college type role. Here's kind of your territory. Here's a list of accounts and, and go after it. Back then, it wasn't, you know, things like LinkedIn weren't as prominent. The beauty of what I had is, is the Hewlett Packard name. That, that alone, I was able to get a lot of meetings uh, just by the sheer fact of the giant beast behind me. And so I had a, I, I supported like a field rep and similar to what my role is now. And I, I know I leveraged that person quite a bit. And they, the, the, this guy was a, a big mentor to me. And I always had a, a goal of accelerating through my sales career and getting out into the field. And I was able to do that very quickly. I was able to do that within 18 months. A lot of it is just leveraging the resources. Again, like kind of what I'm doing now that there's a channel organization and you know, just being able to leverage all the different resources at your fingertips, really built, built on relationships is how I was successful there. And I was able to move to the field very quickly. And they, they ended up moving me out to California, which is where I'm at now. So HP is the, the reason for that. You, you mentioned this earlier to me in a conversation we had that you are a resource hog inside of an organization. Tell me more about what you what do you mean by that? I, you know, to the point where maybe I even annoy people internally, I, I just try to involve everybody. This, a recent deal that I did, I pretty much actually here at Rubric, I, I have the beauty of, you know, now we're, gosh, I was like employee 350 and we're already close to 700 now. So it's not as easy to do, but I try to get my CEO involved in every deal and all the way down. So one thing that's great about doing that is if once my CEO is involved and say there's an ask by the customer, you best believe it that whoever he emails after that meeting to, to get someone on it, I mean, they're going to respond right away. Um, so I'm, I'm able to get access to people quicker by doing that. But I, I always have you know my VP of sales and some of the more strategic deals get involved. I involve my manager. I involve, you know, I, I do technical sales and software. So maybe there's a specific use case that's important to the customer. And we have a specialist in that area, definitely involve that person. So I really just go top down um, and just make my customers feel the love. I'm hearing what you're saying, James. And I feel like it's almost the opposite of what I hear a lot of salespeople doing. A lot of salespeople kind of they, they take that burden onto their shoulders and they say, that's my responsibility. I have to be the one. I'm the only one. Don't touch my deals. Don't touch my accounts. Don't touch my leads. And yep. you're saying, hey, I want to welcome anybody and everybody from the team onto my conversation. So wh where's that balance? I mean, it's your job as a salesperson, but you're bringing in, as you said, everybody, you're bringing in the army. I believe we win as a team uh, and we lose as individuals. So folks that are kind of that lone wolf, it may work in some cases, but I, throughout my career, I've noticed as I progressed that, especially at my last company, I really learned that at a company called Okta to really just involve everyone. And I saw the success right away. Um, I don't think you should hold on to your deals near and dear and not tell anyone about it. I want everyone to know because, hey, if you're selling to a bank and maybe your VP just left a bank that we just closed out in the East Coast and he can bring in some knowledge that I can transfer to the customer that's beneficial to them. So I just think I'm very transparent internally with what I'm doing and what, what accounts I'm working on. And I, 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 you know, maybe there's some people that are successful, just not kind of holding it close. But for me, I've, I've seen a huge uptick in sales from kind of moving towards that transparent model. You said something there, James, that I am not only did I write down, but I'm going to just 
tattoo it on my on my brain. You win as a team and you lose as an individual. It goes parallel just directly with a mantra that I have that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. And so I want to loop that into this conference of, of ref, reference selling. You use a lot of client references. Uh, again, this this resource hog mentality, but you use a lot of references to bring those into closing your deals as well. Tell me how you're doing that. We just had this customer that um, he he said, look, I, I, I absolutely have to talk to at least one. If I could talk to two, it'd be nice. So I went and got four. Uh, references to all contact this CIO. Um, and I wanted to do it as quick as possible after leaving that meeting. And I, I was able to do that. I had four different people call him and just, he didn't even go, he, he did do two of the calls, but he didn't even do the other two. Um, he had already made the decision to go with rubric um, after that second call. But he, he said to me, he's like, you know, I, I told you I really kind of only needed one. But just, it was like overwhelming. And, and I could see that these people were willing to jump on that quickly. It says a lot about your company and what you guys are doing over there. So, uh, you know, I, and I've noticed that just throughout, you know, the last probably really six years that I've been selling is, is I try to have that mentality of overwhelming the customer with references. Um, I'll even in, in just even emails that I'm doing follow-up, um, if it's a qualified deal, I'll always try to throw in a quote that a customer said about us that's in the same industry or shoot over a testimonial video at the bottom. Um, I try to do it throughout the, the sales process, especially for qualified, qualified leads. One of the things that I've seen kind of developing as a theme with a lot of conversations I've had recently is this idea of going from a brand name to no name. And by no means am I trying to say Rubik is a no name company. What I mean by that is you've had big brands, meaning HP behind you before. And as you even said it, right, it was easy to open up conversations. It wasn't easy to sell, but it was easy to open up conversations because you had that well-established name behind you. But as you moved and shifted over to the world of startups where no one's heard those names before, what are the challenges that you've seen there and how have you been able to overcome those? I will say transitioning from selling products everyone has heard of to ones that oftentimes nobody knows, that definitely was the hardest thing I've had to to go through in my career. I spent time at HP, Symantec, Dell, a good eight or nine years of my career coming out of college. And like you said, it, it was, you know, I was able to get meetings just based on, on the name itself. Um, it was when I went to work for a startup called Okta. Um, they're actually a public public company now, but you know, I people were calling it Okta. They didn't know what it was. There's a OC Transportation Authority down here in Orange County, and they're like, "Are you part of the bus system down there?" Really, when you're a new company, when you're brand new, you're growing up like you're this infant going into a you know, you're you're a toddler to a a teenager to an adult kind of growth, and it happens really quickly at these startups. So you kind of have to. It depends on what stage you're in. But if it's like early stage, you, you obviously have to sell them on the, the VCs that backed you and, and the gap that you're filling in the marketplace, the total addressable market. There's a lot that goes into it, you know, in terms of leveraging your C-level and your suite and other VCs to actually get on the horn with, with your customers in that stage. 
So you really have leaned into this concept. I mean, call it account-based sales, call it whatever you want. Like you're just, you're using every resource at your disposal to attack the other side and every level that they're going up to. Hey man, I, I love it. So I think that's fantastic. It's funny though, to me, you actually are using the client reference as part of your negotiation. So when you're closing the deal, you're like, hey, if you sign on to be a reference, a, a usable reference, you're going to uh, give us a deal or you're going to you know, give us some additional services or something along those lines. Did I hear that correctly? In some of these deals in the earlier on, yeah. So we've, we obviously, if um, this is based on if they're successful and the companies I've worked for, worked for, we're hundred percent confident that we'll make our customers successful. And if we aren't, then we would walk away from the deal. Um, I, if it, we're not, if we're not a fit, uh, you know, even though I want that commission check, I, I'll absolutely walk away. But if it's a good fit, and the customer, we know that it's in our wheelhouse, um, and the customer is really pushing us for additional incentives. That's something I, I have thrown in before. That said, hey, look, if we we can meet that, if you guys can do this and and be a reference, whether it's a case study or a testimonial video, then we can meet that demand from that price request. So it, it's it goes back to the whole give get thing. I mean, I try to. Every interaction I have with my customers, they're wanting something from me. And in return, I, there's stuff that we need back. And, you know, if we're at the end of the deal, that, that is something I've definitely leveraged before. And it, it's worked. So you actually wrote an article on this notion of like what to, what to uh, do when you have to overcome that objection of your price is too high. And give, get is one of those. So, you know, basically when I tell my clients, you need to get an IOU for everything you do. But what are some of those other things that you're doing, James? Again, at the end of the sales conversation, when the client says price is just too high, how are you handling that? I think the first thing, my knee jerk response to that is, you know, compared to what? Um, I, that's always what I start out with because it kind of really opens up the customer. Maybe sometimes they're just asking, maybe they want your product or service. They, they know they want it. They've already done a lot of the, you know, you've even mentioned another podcast and I totally believe it, you know, something like 60% of the sales process is already done before they even talk to you, you know, and everyone just wants something extra, uh, you know, at the end. But if, if they, I can kind of vet some of that out by that question of what are you, you know, compared to what, um, if they mention the com- the competition, hopefully you've done your research and you kind of know what, where their pricing's at, um, to see if, if you're already in line with that, you know, you can always go back to the value. Um, you know, I understand that Mr. and Mrs. Customer that, you know, the competitor A is, is less, but here's three customers that I'll get on the phone with you that can, um, that are about the same size. And here's what the value our products brought to them. Here's, here's defined metrics that they got out of it in terms of ROI or TCO savings. So, you know, I, I feel like I, I keep referencing reference selling, but I, that is a good way to overcome it. Um, but yeah, in my article, there, there's things that I've done, like just being silent when they first say it, because let them talk. You know, what what is it really that's too expensive or the price is too high? Is it that you haven't really, we haven't done a, a good job of showing the metrics that will come out? Um, and then that give get, I, I always try to do that throughout the sales uh, process. There's only so many things we have in our bag, you know, references, case studies, uh, access to C level, um, you know, proof of concept. So 
every time throughout the process, we're, we should always be trying to to get something back if, if we're giving the customer something. One of the things that I've always seen is every objection that you're facing at the end, it's been known since the beginning. It's just whether or not you had the courage enough to bring it out and yeah. have that conversation. So I uh, really like that. Totally James, great. I've got to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales sooners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about Costello, a new product I've been exploring for discovery calls. One of the things I hear most from VPs of sales is their frustration with the lack of consistency and transparency from their reps in the discovery process. If that's you, you need to check out Costello. Costello guides reps to ask the right questions, provides them with dynamic suggestions, automatically updates Salesforce, and even makes it easy to form the habits that ultimately close more deals. For a demo, head to andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back and it's time for the money round. James, are you ready for the money round? I'm ready. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Goes back to working at startups. I think I was a, a pretty good sales rep, um, but this has uh, really advanced my everything about what I do uh, has been working at these last couple startups. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? self-educate in every way possible, uh, whether it's picking the brain of a mentor or an engineer every single day, uh, listening to podcasts like, like this one uh, during your drive time. Or you know, what I do is I even when I work out every day, I listen to podcasts. I, I used to just listen to music, um, but I, I feel like you know, as, ever since I started doing this a year and a half ago, listening to a lot of different sales podcasts, just getting at least one little nugget out of each of these goes a long way. And then just, you know, obviously reading books and sales blogs. Uh, I, I think that's truly important. Two part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? I hate to lose more than anything in the world. Uh, it really pisses me off uh, to the point that I can't even sleep. Uh, it's, it's also the fire that drives me to win, but definitely just losing. I, I, I've been an athlete growing up and, you know, I can remember some of the losses we had uh, just as much as I remember, even as a senior, we won the state championship in football. And it's, it's just funny. I, I just hate to lose. James, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? I hate to say it, but I, I have to go back to the how to win friends and influence people with, uh, by Dale Carnegie. This is, this is my Bible. I, I, I'm actually reading it again right now. Um, I try to read it once a year. And uh, if you can follow the different principles in that book, I think you can really kill it in any sales job. And sales tuners, if you'd like to check out James's suggestion of how to win friends and influence people for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. And James, I must say, how to win friends and influence people is actually what is in queue right now for me in my Audible, because I also try to listen to that at least once a year because of those same principles that you're talking about. So I absolutely love that recommendation. James, what is currently at the top of your bucket list? Yeah, so we talked about travel earlier. Um, mine is, I, I've always had this goal of retiring by age of 50 and traveling the world with my wife. So it, it's definitely, I'm at 22 countries right now. You know, I want to double that. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? 
Yeah. So never stop learning how to sell better. Uh, it's like a muscle. So if you stop working at it, you're, you become lazy, weak, and then unattractive. James and I talked more off the air about his travels and my upcoming plans. And our chat led me to adding Yacht Week to my bucket list. It's something I definitely think you should check out. He also said the best way to stay in touch with him was through his personal website at jameswpurvis.com. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, get something in return. Whether it's references, case studies, access to your C-suite, or proof of concepts, there's only so many things we have in our bag as sales reps. So before you give away the farm for customer request, make sure you're getting something in return for each ask. Number two, overwhelm the prospect's request. Once you decide it's time to send over references, overwhelm them with your approach. If they ask for two, give them four and do it as fast as possible. This shows that not only do you have 100% faith in your product, but also your existing customers do as well. Bonus tip. This also works in the prospecting stage. Send over testimonial quotes from existing customers who are in a similar industry. Number three, leverage as many people as possible. James considers himself a resource hog and wants everyone in the company to know about every deal he's working on. With that, he's able to align his CEO with the prospect CEO, his VP of technology to the prospect's VP of technology, any subject matter experts that are relevant to the opportunity, and, well, obviously, as many customer references as possible. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me, at SalesTuners, or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope you see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there. And they stay there. Why do they call it beauty sleep when you usually wake up looking terrible?